You were listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Um, Today we are going to be reading out of the the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. So if you could open your, your Bibles to there. And I will read aloud while you follow along, please. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Good to be with you all here today. Um, So uh, I've been here before. uh, Most of y'all don't even know that probably. Uh, So my second second week in, uh, actually my first week in Fairfax County, we came from North Carolina, where I was uh, on staff at a church in, uh, in Fayetteville outside of the, the military base, Fort, Fort Bragg, and came to Northern Virginia to, to start our church, came with four military families in tow, and our, fam- our, our church really is a, uh, almost all military, about 95% of us uh, are, are military in our, in our church. And my second week here, I came to your second service. So it's good to be back and good to see, uh, see you all thriving and flourishing as you are. We're going to be looking at... Uh, Philippians 4, 10 through 13 here today. We're going to talk about learning contentment. I don't know about you, but here's what I've uh, learned in my life. You know, that nothing shows my own lack of contentment more than being forced to go without something that I've gotten used to having. Can I get an amen? amen. And, you know, and, it, and it's actually worse when you have the attitude, when I have the attitude that the thing I'm being forced to go without, I actually want or, or really need. So I spent uh, a few years in the Army prior to coming into vocational ministry, 20 years and eight days to be exact. It's got a, got a couple of hoo-hoo's out there somewhere. Um, so if you spend like one day in the, in the military, particularly the Army, uh, I spent 20 years or so. So that gives me a lot of time to, to actually be discontent. Um, for four years and seven months of my life, I've been spent in the country of Iraq. And, uh, and so, particularly if you're an American, being in Iraq is not a fun place to be. Um, and, so, and I'm not even talking about the combat operations. I'm just talking about just being there. Um, it is a, it's a difficult place, perhaps for even the people that have, uh, God has sovereignly placed, placed there. Uh, I recall my first deployment. I was a young lieutenant, barely a year and a half in the Army. And of course, if you don't know, a person in the military, particularly the Army, my experience, if you're going to de- de- deploy, I mean, you're excited about that. So you've trained up, you've gone through uh, some, you know, some hard things to, to learn what you're supposed to learn as a, as a military person. You've donned the uniform, you've learned how to use the equipment, and our country wants to send you to a destination and allow you to use all that you've learned. And so uh, when you hear of a, about a military person getting ready to de- deploy, don't, don't be 
fretful or sad for them. They, they're probably excited about doing whatever they're getting ready to do. And so I was like that when I got to, got to Iraq. And so we flew. Um, I was with the 101st Airborne Division out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. We landed in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. There's this huge tent city set up for us, like Bedouin tents, like rows and rows and rows, because of course there's thousands of military people there. I remember my very first day, it was 107 degrees. I had never experienced 107 degrees in my life. I'm from the South. I'm used to being hot. I'm used to sweating. 107 degrees is different. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm in a tent full of guys, and I mean, we just stripped all of our clothes off, nothing but shorts or underwear. I got sweatless, like streaming from my face. I'm like this, and that's where my discontent started. <laughs> and so, uh, in my in my first experience, um, you know, in the, in the military, you, you eat MREs, meals ready to eat. And I mean, I actually love MREs. They're uh, they're these bags. You can get them at all the the sporting outing stores. Uh, you can buy them. Uh, but the military gives them to us for free. And so different flavors of food, mostly dehydrated stuff. You put a little water in it, heat it up with a heat tab, and voila, you got a, 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 a delicious meal there. I used to love MREs. When the Army deploys in a large fashion like Desert Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, this is the early 90s before a few of you were even born, um, they try out new things, new things in weapons and technology and uh, all kinds of stuff, to include the food that they serve soldiers. And so they were trying out something new on our unit called a T-RAT, a T-Ration. Army, you know, of course, we hyphenate everything. T-Ration. Uh, my unit was in a remote location, uh, sort of tucked underneath the, the Saudi Arabia-Iraqi border. And because of the logistics chain to get us stuff, um, our meals were, um, were limited. So we had the, the typical MRE. And then, of course, they were trying out these tea rations on us. The only tea ration that I ate for seven months was chicken cacciatore. I don't even, I had never had chicken cacciatore before that moment, and I've not had it since. <laughs> Another opportunity for discontent. Uh, this was the first time that the United States Army had deployed to a desert environment. Not ever, but in a long time. And so the Army was literally manufacturing uniforms as we were deploying, and they only gave me two. Typically, a soldier will have a lot of uniforms, but because we we're going to a desert environment, they gave me two. So I had two uniforms. I was deployed for 10 months, and if you, I mean, just do the math. I had two uniforms. I wore those two uniforms every, every day for 10 months. It's like you, okay, so the clothes you got on right now, you can wear those, and then I'll let you wear whatever you have tomorrow, and you interchange those as often as you want, for 10 months, that's all you can wear. From your t-shirt to your outer garments, down to your underwear and your socks and your boots. That's all you get, 10 months. And guess what? Okay, you're sweating and all the things that your, your body does and you only get to wash those clothes one day every other week. <laughs> like nasty, right? <laughs> it doesn't stop there. All right, so, you know, in the Army, when you go out to train, we call it uh, field, you know, field training. Of course, this is a deployment. So we're out in the environment the whole time. And there are none of the, the normal accoutrements and the normal technological things that you have when you're back here in United, the good old United States of America. And so they plopped us in the middle of nowhere, and we have what we have. 
And so that means there's no running water, there's no toilets, there's, that's like none of that stuff. We're, we're making that stuff as we go or just digging holes in, in, the, in the ground and doing what you got to do. So we, we had a day off, in other words, a, a day that we weren't operating, shooting at somebody or, or maneuvering um, once or once a week or once every other week. And at that point, they would bring in a water buffalo, this large trailer filled with hundreds of gallons of water. And from that, we would we'd be able to, every, every soldier would get a, a pail of water and we could wash our clothes. And so my two uniforms, I actually washed them by hand. I took, sh- I took shampoo, poured it in the water, lathered it up a little bit, and that's how I washed my clothes. And then we took Australian showers. Any of y'all familiar with Australian, sh- Australian showers? All right, Australian shower is a makeshift shower. So it's a canvas, sort of like, uh, made like a, t- uh, uh, a bucket, except it's going to be uh, uh, elevated. You're going to have a hook on it, and it's got a shower spigot underneath it. So you fill it with water, and you hang it, and you sit it out in the sun, hoping that the, the, the heat of the Saudi Arabian Iraqi desert is going to warm it up to lukewarm temperature. And then, I mean, you're on your own from there. You, you take the risk of, of showering yourself in that very cold water. I could go on and on and on and on. Um, so, of course, I redeployed safely uh, uh, that very first time. The very first day I got back, of course, I, I would have thrown those uniforms away if I could have, but the Army wanted them back. Can you believe that? They wanted those <laughs> uniforms back. Um, I was single, uh, so I went to North Carolina and spent a couple weeks with my parents, and I had my mother cook every, all of my favorite dishes. I like every single one of them because I had eaten chicken cacciatore every day for seven months. Um, most notably, I probably have a little PTSD even now because uh, I, I learned that whenever you have hot running water that you don't have to manufacture yourself, take a shower. And so uh, uh, even, even on a day off where I want to just sit in my living room reading a book with my pajamas on, at some point in the day I'm going to go slip away, go to my shower and turn it on and get under it just because I can because you never know when you might run out of water. Um, I think those are some of the lessons that I learned about myself in regards to uh, my discontent and how just the circumstances of life can kind of sort of uh, make you think that uh, you deserve to, to have discontent. What about you? Have you w- are you a person that would say that you uh, live with any level of discontent? I think one real world example that we saw here in Northern Virginia was a shutdown that we experienced uh, a month or so ago. Uh, my church is mostly military, but we do have other, obviously, other government agencies working in uh, that go to our church, FBI, Secret Service, Coast Guard, uh, State Department. Seven families in our church were shut down, and the lesson that uh, these people told me was they learned um, just how much, um, how much they have and actually think they need that they really don't, and they learn to prioritize uh, their resources better from that. But mostly they learn how discontented they they can sometimes be when they're forced to do without things that they think they need or that they deserve. So, I mean, what, if anything, would you say makes you content? Is it wealth or is it your friends or success or power or influence? Do you crave a spouse if you are single here? 
uh, just relationships. You know, a lot of times we think that if we change our circumstance, then immediately that's going to make me more content in life. And I think that's the way, the way that our world works, isn't it? Uh, that, that contentment is always tied to our circumstances. So if my circumstance is good, then life is good and I'm going to be content. But of course, if my circumstances are bad, then I deserve to feel a little discontented. So our text today is going to tell us the actual opposite, the, 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 very, the very opposite, that, uh, that having this kind of idea about um, your circumstances leading, lending to discontentment is not necessarily a biblical view of contentment. Paul's going to tell us that contentment is not contingent on your circumstances. Rather, it's rooted in your confidence in Christ. The more confidence you have that Jesus is sufficient, that he's, a, that he's enough, that he is who he says he is, that he has done and is doing all that he claims to be able to do and that God sent him to do in our scripture, that that should be the, um, the focus of our hope. That means our circumstances almost become irre- irrelevant. The circumstances that a lot of times um, orients us to have a good day or a bad day. Those are all irrelevant. And here's the thing that I, I'm going to end on. Paul is going to say to us that contentment is something that is learned. That we actually don't, most of us, don't have it in us, this natural ability to be content. It's not something that just happens to most of us. It's a learned response. And so with that, I want to focus on three things that, at least for me, stick out in our, in our text. And the first of that is joy. Look at verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So you all have been studying this book of uh, Philippians for a couple of months, and uh, you've learned this already. This Philippian church, they aren't special, but they are kind of unique. Uh, This is the only church to whom Paul doesn't issue any major rebukes theologically. They're not a heretical uh, church in terms of their theological beliefs. But here's what's unique about them. It's it's their financial record. It's It's their posture for giving. Paul actually talks about them and the way that they've given uh, in 2 Corinthians 8. He says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave of themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so this Macedonian church that Paul is admonishing the Corinthians about, this affluent, kind of jacked up church that he talks about and spent almost two years with at Corinth, he's recommending, he's commending to them the church at Philippi, a church that actually was poor, like, like they existed in extreme poverty, yet they gave very generously to Paul and to the advancement of the gospel, so much so that he's commending the, the Corinthians, look, be like them in, in your physical attitude, but also in, in your giving. And Paul, is, is, he found that refreshing. Even joyous, he writes, about this church that despite their ongoing financial strain, 
they're still giving generously. And, and this time, it, the, the, the Philippian church wasn't just giving for the advancement of the churches and starting new churches. They were giving to, to Paul directly as, as a benefactor. And that's why he uses the word rejoice here. You guys have talked about that word. That word is, is sprinkled throughout the, the whole uh, letter to the church at Philippi. First, it's the overall theme of the letter, that, that the, this joy that Paul has as, as an apostle, as he's thinking about this church and all they've done for him and for the advancement of the gospel. And so he says in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, I have joy because of your partnership in the gospel. They had um, overwhelmingly supported Paul and all the things that he's done. And he's writing them probably about 10 years uh, after founding this very church. He, he rejoices because of their ongoing prayer for his deliverance from prison. Paul's uh, you know, tied to a praetorian guard, and he's been in prison probably upwards of a couple years waiting on a trial with Caesar. He rejoices in the Lord. That's a phrase that we'll hear Paul say several times throughout this letter that we have heard, rather. And what he's boasting in really is, is Jesus' faithfulness to, to himself, but also the Philippians' Uh, in spite of their their individual circumstances. And in this particular case, Paul is joyous because of their provision. In fact, I mean, that's the reason why he writes this letter, right? This, this, this is a huge, this is a, uh, a grand thank you note to this church at Philippi for all that they have done. And so Paul is grateful that they have revived, he uses that word, their concern for him. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Revived. Um, it means to blossom again. So Paul being in prison in first century Rome is very much unlike the prisons that we would experience here in the United States of America or anywhere in the, in the Western world. Um, in our prison system, the, the state government or the federal government takes care of the, I mean, we're, we're providing, we're caring for inmates as they exist in our prisons. In the first century, I mean, absolutely not so much. Paul would have been locked up He's living off of meager, uh, meager resources, uh, and, and really he, he doesn't have anything unless someone brings it to him. He's likely chained to a, to a Roman guard. And so Epaphroditus shows up. He's a Philippian, and he shows up uh, not just with money, but, but with practical care for Paul. And, I mean, Paul, just, I mean, he just lights up. And he, the, the phrase that he uses He's saying this is like winter turning into spring. It's, it's like us in D.C. We're getting giddy over the thought that a month from now, the cherry blossoms in D.C. are going to like start like full bloom. We're going to take our families. We're going to take some pictures. We're going to join in the festival, all this kinds of stuff. And he said, hey, the gloom period is over, and it brought him great joy. But more than that, here's what he's focusing on. It demonstrated this, the, the grand generosity of this extremely poor church. I mean, he saw the Lord operating through them, and for that, he rejoiced. He rejoiced in their kindness toward them. At the same time, Paul didn't want them to get a big head, and he didn't want them to misinterpret what he was saying. So they had given him some money, and by his wording, he said, all right, so I know you've given me some money, and, I, and I'm, I'm kind of happy about that. You've provided for my need." But I don't want you to think that I have these extreme needs and you need to give me more money. So look what he says next. He says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever circumstance or in whatever situation I am in to be content. And then verse 12, he goes on to say, I've learned the secret of contentment, the secret of contentment. And that really is what I want to, the the second thing that pops out. First it was joy and now contentment. Here's, Here's what I've learned in my short few years of life. Contentment is hard to come by. 
I mean, I proved that through 20 years of the army. I have, I have learned the art of being discontent. And if you live in D.C., so have you. We don't live in a culture based on contentment. Our culture is based on creating consumer appetite. And you know that because you live it every day. Advertisers know how to get us. They know, I mean, they, they know how to market their products in these ad campaigns just the right way so that we not only want what they're marketing towards us, but at some point they make us figure out that I not just want it, I need it, and I have to have it. Don't you hate it when uh, you're Googling something and all of a sudden, whatever you're Googling, say a pair of boots, it's showing up in your Instagram feed, like the, the, the sponsored ad or, your, or your, your Facebook feed or you're on YouTube and like on the side, like, didn't I just look at those books like two, those uh, boots two, two days ago? They're, they're following us. They're tracking our spending and our searching habits and they're, they're putting in us this, this discontent, this dissatisfaction in our lives to convince us that not only is their product something that we need, but we have to have it. And our lives are going to be dissatisfied and discontent until we go ahead and purchase it. It's this idea of, of making us bigger and faster and cleaner and happier and sexier and smarter and freer and wealthier and healthier and happier. I mean, you add your own adjectival superlative to this list, right? In hopes that we will buy into this idea of my life is not going to be worth living unless I have that thing. And that's what discontent does to us. And it's not just the product. They want you to to buy into this idea, I need a whole new me, and if I get that thing right there, I'm going to have it from head to toe. That's what Paul is saying. And I'm going to get in trouble for saying this because I live in D.C. like the rest of y'all. Here's the thing. Our economy, our whole economy is geared in this direction, isn't it? That we would um, we would be dissatisfied and discontent. And therefore, we would use our money to buy things that would make us feel better about ourselves and about um, the way that we live in the world. Uh, Here's what I think Paul is getting to. It's a radically, profoundly countercultural thing in our day to be content. How odd contentment is. But it actually was odd in Paul's day as well. The word that Paul uses here for contentment is a word that he borrows from the, the Stoics, the philosophical school of the Stoics. It's a word that means self-sufficiency or self-satisfaction. One of the particular Stoics that Paul is quoting Uh, is a guy named Seneca, and Seneca wrote this. He says, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. And what Paul is, is sort of suggesting to us is that we can create our own contentment. It's in us to to do it ourselves. The stoic ideal is that all of us would be self-contained supermen or wonder women or Captain Marvels, and that we could Uh, abound if we wanted to, uh, in whatever the situation was, whether we had a lot or whether we had a little. We could could relegate our own level of contentment, and it was in us to do it. And so from the surface, it sounds like Paul is taking the stoic idea, the stoic word, and presenting presenting it to us, to the church at Philippi, and saying, hey, this is the way to live. You have it within you to be content. All you got to do is squeeze your hands hard, get on your prayer face, and just make, you know, wish for it to happen, and it's going to happen. But we have to read on. 
Because whereas stoicism and marketers both tell you that contentment comes from within yourself, that you can make yourself content, advertisers are trying to get us to believe that you can do it if you simply purchase my product. Paul is actually deriving his contentment from, from a totally different place. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can face it all. I can deal with it all. The deepest depths, the highest heights. I can be rich. I can be poor. I can be hungry. I can be full. I can deal with it all. I can deal with it all. But here's Paul's qualifier. If I have Jesus. That's what he's saying to us. He's saying Jesus is enough. In other words, Paul's contentment is found not in his own self-sufficiency, but in Christ's sufficiency. Now, this verse 13 is a refrigerator verse, right? I mean, this is the one that you put on a magnet, you put it on your refrigerator, you've got this on your coffee cup, you take it into work, you turn it around so everybody can see it as you're getting a little sip of coffee. You put, I mean, you write this in calligraphy, you put it on a nice kind of a canvas, and you put it on a frame in your office, so you're reminding yourself, there's nothing that I can't do if I got Jesus, right? This is the, this is the weightlifter that, uh, that goes to a tattoo artist, and he's going to get Philippians 14, I can do everything in Christ who strengthens me. He puts on a bicep, he like kisses that, he kisses it before he starts to lift. This is that dummy that thinks he can go into the gym and lift, bench press 300 pounds as long as he's quoting that verse right before he starts to do it. I mean, this is how we use this verse. But most notably, this is the faith movement that takes this verse out of context. And they will convince us that God wants to write us a blank check that, again, if we grip our hands tight enough, and we will ourselves with our eyes closed, grit our teeth, get on our, I'm in serious, God, I need you to do this for me face, that we really can do anything we want in Christ. Because if I ask it, and I name it, and I claim it, he's going to give me strength to do it. Now, you guys are Bible readers, so it only takes a little bit of reading the Bible. That's, that's why people like Justin and I stand up on a stage like this, and emphasize more than anything, Christians, read your Bible. Like, actually open it up. That's why they've said, hey, if you came here without a Bible, we have some. Take it with you. Open it up. Read a little bit of it every day. Our church does something called community Bible reading, where we're reading one uh, chapter out of the New Testament, one chapter out of the Old Testament every day, and then on, in, a, in a private Facebook page, we're sharing our thoughts, what stands out. Not focusing, not focusing on the parts that we don't understand, but highlighting that part that we do in hopes that collectively we would be encouraged in God's word and that we would be uh, encouraged to serve Jesus more because of the way that we've been encouraged and impacted by his word. And so Paul is encouraging us. This verse doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean that no matter what challenge God has promised to you, that he's going to fix it, that he's going to help you invade every difficulty in in your life. It doesn't mean that he's giving you a blank check to apply willy-nilly every time you have some difficulty that you need to get out of free jail card like Monopoly. In this case, context determines the meaning and the context that Paul is uh, saying this phrase, I can do everything through, through Christ who strengthens me, is in the context of any and every circumstance. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, I'm able to do this through 
Christ who gives me strength. One scholar that I read this week uh, emphasizes the word through. That's a preposition that also in the Greek means in. And so it's, it's this, also, this parallel idea, not just through Christ am I, am I able to, to do, am, am I able to endure the circumstances of my life, but it's in Christ. This idea of me being in unity with Jesus as it was for him, so it will be for me as I put my faith in him. So, soldier in church, where are the roots of real contentment? A contentment that does not ebb and flow, that isn't blown and tossed by the changing nature of our world, that's not harnessed to the accumulation of the stuff, even the stuff that we think we want or that we need. Where is that found? Here's what he says. And this doesn't sound sexy, but this is, this is the answer. He says, it's found in Jesus and him alone. And here's why. It's because you don't have it in and of yourself to actually strengthen yourself to do, to, to, to make yourself feel good in every circumstance. You're going to fail you, just like you fail the person next to you. I mean, have you ever experienced that yet? It's, it's going to happen. Stuff gets broken, stuff gets lost, stuff gets stolen, circumstances change. But here's what the scriptures enlighten us about the Lord that we serve. It, it, he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I mean, don't you love that about Jesus? Where is the, 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 the hymn that says, uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. And so unless you're standing on the rock, which is Christ, the thing that you're depending your life on is going to crumble. It's going to tumble. It's going to sink into this giant sinking hole and will be of no avail to you when you think you need it. And that brings me to the last thing that I want to unpack with you all. It's this idea that contentment can be learned. I think Paul wants us to grab a hold of that and, and not shy away from it. Contentment can be learned, which I think ultimately means that most of us in this room, it's not natural for us to be content, particularly if you are an American. We are bred to live with and deal with and try to work around discontentment. It's in our culture. So here Paul is, is saying that learning contentment is part of our ongoing life with God. Theologically, we call that sanctification, right? It's this idea that God is always working on you to redeem those parts of you that are much less like him so that they would be more like him, created in his image, conformed to his image, trans, transformed into his image. I love what Justin preached last week uh, in verses uh, 8 and 9, particularly what he unpacked in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what? Practice these things. Highlight the word practice. I mean, that word just jumps out. What does that mean? That means that even as I'm thinking about things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, that just thinking about it, although that's good, it may keep you from doing some things that are opposite of those, but that's not enough. Paul is saying you got to actually uh, practice that stuff, like commit to doing it or else it's not going to stick. He's saying the same thing about contentment. You actually have to, like, work at it. Work at it, not in your own strength, but as the Lord would allow you. And so here's what I've learned. 
Jesus-centered contentment is not pre-installed on my heart like I wanted to. I wanted to come like I wanted to come like, a, like my, my new boxed iPhone, like like all the core apps that are on your phone, some of the ones you can't even delete if you want to. Wouldn't you want contentment to be on you and in you like that's like, Lord, I don't want to be content right now. I just want to be mad. I just want I want to have I want to have like this idea of always wanting something new. But he doesn't do that. He grows it in us. Contentment that God wants you to have. It's not injected in a single dose like a vaccine that makes you immune to disease for the rest of your life. Paul emphasizes it takes practice. And don't you hate that? I mean, honestly, love and hate it. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you're always, I mean, the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus. And there's something in us that always wants to be more like him. At the same time, I hate the fact that I got to work at it. I mean, who wants to work, right? I guess we're in D.C. We love to work. (laughs) Contentment grows over time, mostly, and this is the part that's hard, mostly as we face adversity, right? It's those adverse situations that are going to lend you to growing in contentment more than anything else in your finances, in your health, in your relationships, all the areas of your life. Here's what Hebrews 5 says about Jesus. It says, he learned obedience by what? He suffered. Ouch. I think that's the way that we're supposed to learn contentment as well. We can't escape it. We're in Christ in unity with him as it is for him. So it shall be with us. These things in turn provoke us to seek Jesus' strength to release our grip, hopefully on his gifts, while we strengthen our grasp on his grace. Here's what Paul continues to say. He says, we shouldn't think that cultivating contentment as just a matter of following a series of steps or like an exercise routine or even programming our attitudes. He adds in verse 12, there's a secret to learning contentment. The word secret means I've been initiated. Paul is speaking of, he's, he's sort of suggesting uh, what the pagans thought of in terms of their religions. They, they had to be initiated into their religions because there was a lot of things going on in pagan mystery religions that you, you weren't av- uh, availed to know about unless you went through the initiation. And he's likening it to that. Uh, so my son, Jonathan, put on Facebook a couple weeks ago. He said, so I did a thing. So my son, Jonathan, is he's barely 20. He's a sophomore at Shenandoah University. He's a conservatory student. And so my, my wife and I saw the post and like, what in the world did he do? And he's showing this picture with some dudes. And apparently my son, Jonathan, pledged a fraternity, like shocked us because, I mean, he's a violin player. Like he I mean, who who even knew he knew the word fraternity? <laughs> um, and of course, our background is like what uh, what pledging would be like in an HBCU, like Alpha, um, Sigmas, uh, Omega Sci-Fi, that kind of thing. So I don't think he went through some of that. And so, of course, as parents, we contacted him. It was like, Jonathan, did you just pledge your fraternity? And then we're asking him questions, and guess what that dude did? He, He was vague. He wouldn't even tell us what he had done. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. There's, there's an initiation. And here's what, I, I'm not saying fraternities are bad, but it, the idea of fraternity, th- there's some secrets to it that you, you won't even, you aren't even um, welcome to understand what the closed door, uh, undisclosed 
secrets and reasons for the organization that exists unless you've been initiated into it. And Paul is implying here there's a secret to contentment that will enable you to weather the best and the absolute worst of times, but you got to be initiated into it. And here's where the secret is. It's the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and here it is. It's this open, very public secret about a God who condescended from heaven to earth. And he lived our life. He drank our drink. He wore our clothes. He put skin on and he lived a life that we couldn't live but should have. And he was condemned to die a death that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. He actually died. They put him in the grave and God by his spirit rose him up from that grave and enabled him to um, preach to witnesses so that they would testify to who he is and then He caused him to uh, ascend into heaven where he reigns and rules over his people as they extend the gospel to to all lands and to all nations and to all people. And one day the hope of heaven is that he will return and, I mean, honestly, actually call us to himself. This beautiful, um, publicly open secret about contentment is that Jesus is the actual secret to our contentment. Not some mystery hidden behind a veil or immersed in some closed-door ritual or experience. The historical Jesus who actually lived, who actually died, who actually rose again. And Paul is committing that the better we know Jesus, the more we'll discover that he's the one who not only makes us content, but satisfies our discontented hearts. Let me finish with this. I mean, practically. I always think practically before I think spiritually, probably because I spent so much time in the army. Um, I became a Christian in the army. So for those of you that think the army is godless, it's not true. There's, there's no such thing as an as a atheist in the foxhole. That's absolutely true. How does one gain contentment? I love this about your church. And of course, our church is six months behind yours. And so Justin has been my mentor for like the last six years. And I meet with Justin about every quarter. And here's the, here's the gist of our meeting. All right, Justin, what's Sojourn doing and what should I be doing next? And I love the, the way that you all use and both um, um, uh, lend yourself to the Psalms. We, we, uh, we recited a couple this morning. I know you, you spend some of your summers going through the Psalms. And I think the Psalms have a beautiful picture of what contentment is like. We looked at Psalm 130 during, uh, during our liturgy. Uh, let's look at Psalm 131. Here's what David writes. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous for me. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David is writing this, and of course David had been through, I mean, the gamut. He's the king of Israel, but he's also a worshiper, and this would have been a psalm of ascent, so the David and the pilgrims would have used these words to refresh their memory of all that God had delivered them from throughout wars without dysfunction within. And they're praising God for all that he had done. And he gives us this, this, this um, a beautiful picture of an infant that's completely content in his mother's arms. He's been winged, so he's not clamoring to get at, at, her, at her breast for his, his food. Uh, she's rocked him to sleep. He feels safe and secure in his mother's arms. And David is saying, hey, this is me. I've been through some rocky ups and downs. And Lord, you have been through me with, through it all. 
and I'm now content. And I think if Paul, uh, Paul has captured the same idea in what he writes to us in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, and if both of them were here before us standing today, they tell us, soldier in church, hope in the Lord. We've learned in every circumstance to be content because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, not because of our own strength, not because of what's in us, but because of who Jesus is. Jesus really is enough. And so my question for us as I close is, I mean, do, do any of us actually believe that? Have you gotten to a place that you can actually believe that Jesus is enough, that you can do everything through him who gives you strength? And that your strength is to no avail? Or has life betrayed you to deeper idolatries that you need Jesus plus, Jesus and? I can't be content with Jesus unless I have Jesus and my parents' uh, my parents' approval or this promotion or Jesus and this girlfriend or Jesus and this praise, this new car, this man's attention. A lot of times we tell ourselves, I love Jesus. Jesus. But what we do is we unmask our own idolatrous hearts when we live as though we need all this other stuff and that he's not enough. But again, the the hymn writer tells us on the solid rock, Jesus, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so my exhortation for us today is don't Live life like the Stoics. Don't be like those advertisers that are telling you if you look for contentment anywhere else but Jesus, it'll melt away like the snow we had two days ago that's gone today. All other ground is sinking sand. I'll close with this. We were meant to be restless and discontent when we look anywhere other than Jesus for that contentment. You were made to root your contentment in him. And let me be bold enough to say this as well. Your contentment is an illusion if you think that you're good. I'm satisfied without Jesus. I've got my title. I got my money. I've got my stuff. I'm happy. That's an illusion. That won't get you to an eternity with the Lord. Here's what Augustine said. I'll finish with this. Thou hast made us for thyself and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. We have restless hearts when we seek to satisfy our appetites with money and sex and power or reputation and stuff. When we pad our houses with the accumulation of things because our hearts crave more and more and they were made for more. But the more that you were made for is the Lord himself. and We all need more of him. Let's pray. Father, I'm thank you for this, uh, thankful for this opportunity to be here with this church that I've learned so much from from its pastor and its leaders, and it's good to be here worshiping amongst them. I am um, I, I'm glad to be involved with Sojourn Church, and I'm thankful for how they've sown into, into our young church. And uh, may we grow in the grace of God together. Thank you for the gospel today, Lord. It takes us through ups and downs and inside and out. I love how the gospel reorders our priorities if we allow it to. And uh, Lord, my exhortation for this congregation today is, is, is that by the Holy Spirit, you'd help us to, to learn contentment in Christ. Really, it is the, the, the prize, the precious prize of godly contentment that we're all leaning towards. And the truth is, all of us here are going to have 
all these days. Some days great fortune is going to await us, and some days we'll be left um, wanting. But through it all, you're telling us that if we keep Jesus as the center of our lives, we can be content. Whether it's an abundance or whether we have lost Jesus with him, our lives remain the same. So keep us in him, Lord God, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you, Sojourn. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. Go in peace.